This morning it is my privilege and my honor to introduce to you the man who will be bringing us the Word of God. His name is Tan Molina. Tan comes from Leon, Spain, where at his church he's been a <clears throat> music uh, leader, a worship leader for 10 years, and he serves as a deacon. But Tan is one of my fellow classmates at Cornerstone Seminary, and I'm, I'm very thrilled to say he's not only a classmate, but a friend and a brother. And we have some great times there. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy is not only learning the lessons, but interacting with men like Tan and hearing as they ask questions, as they give answers, as they talk about the things that we're learning. And I learned so much from them and gained so much from the fellowship that we have there. Tan is here with his wife, Karen, who's uh, in the back or was, was in the back. She may be taking the kids to the nursery. He has three young boys who are with him. So at the end of the service, please welcome Karen and the boys and, and Tan. Um, at, our, at our seminary, um, some of us have given nicknames to each other. Um, it happened in, in our Old Testament survey class. Um, for obvious reasons, my nickname is The Chief. Um, we have a guy named Heath, and his nickname is Heath N. Sometimes he's called Kjo because uh, tongue-in-cheek, he would talk about the King James only Bible. Um, now, Ton has an interesting nickname. His, his name is really Ton Molina Obispo. And if you know anything about um, Spanish culture, and I hope I'm getting this right, Tan, Obispo is your mother's name. And that, it, it's an appellation at the end of, of the, the name that they use. Well, Obispo trans, or translates out to bishop. So I bet you can guess what Tan's nickname is. So we call him the bishop. It's my, my joy and my thrill to introduce Tan, to have him come up and, and bring us the word. Um, I know you will enjoy it. You remember, may have met him uh, back last summer when he and David Robles, uh, who's also from Spain, was out. Um, so here he is again this time to bring us the word. Tan, please come preach. Thank you, brother. Oh, thank you, chief. What can I say? <laughs> I truly appreciate your words, and uh, uh, love and appreciation is m mutual. And I, I have to tell you, church, um, knowing Jeff, you have a great pastor among you here. And, uh, and when Jeff speaks there uh, during the classes, usually everybody listens to him because he has so much knowledge and wisdom and insight to the things that um, we are receiving. So it is a real joy to be in class with you and... Uh, uh, enjoy the Cornerstone Seminary, and it was very, very easy for me to decide where to go when I had a time to decide um, what seminary, which seminary I was going to go. And um, then this this man whose name was Steve Fernandez came to my church, and um, the Lord used him in a great way to um, touch my heart and see the glory of Christ. And um, so we, we moved a year ago uh, from Leon, Spain to Vallejo, of all places. <laughs> People asking me, do you like Vallejo? I say, well, it's the place I have to live right now, but uh, it's not the most beautiful city. But truly, CBC, the church, and the seminary is a real joy to be part of what the Lord is doing there. And I know you guys uh, have good friends over there, and... Um, uh, I, I bring greetings from Adrian Donato, the dean of the seminary, 
And I also bring greetings from David, David Robles, who was here last summer. And David and I grew up together. Uh, so we played together. We grew up uh, teenagers. And then he, he came to the States to uh, attend seminary. And, um, and now the Lord has led me to come here as well. So it is a really a joy and privilege to be part of what, what the Lord is doing in Spain. I also bring uh, greetings from my cold that I have. I hope that that is not a problem for you. Besides my accent, that my cold doesn't, uh, doesn't, is not an impediment for you to understand me this morning. Uh, so pray for me. <laughs> And actually, we're going to pray before we open the Word of God. All we have is you. As we were just singing, Father, we just have a heart full of worship and praise to your name for what you are and for what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, to whom we give all the glory and praise. Father, I pray that your, your word is taught this morning. Use to Holy, the Holy Spirit. Um, use, use him beyond my knowledge, beyond my accent, beyond my sin to touch my brothers and sisters' hearts. Thank you for the privilege to open your word and learn more from you. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. This last week, I was reading the news, and I was very amazed at the pictures that uh, the Hubble telescope sent to Earth. I don't know if you have seen them. In these pictures, you can see an image of the Andromeda galaxy with its 100 million stars. In Andromeda, it is um, the closest spiral galaxy like ours. The closest, that is 2.6 million light years away from us. So looking at these pictures, I was very humble. I was very humble realizing more and more how small we are comparing with the universe. So think about this. We live in a planet that is 100 times smaller than the sun. And the sun... It is a grain of sand in the middle of our galaxy. And our galaxy is like a grain of sand in the middle of the universe. And we all live here on Earth, 7 billion people. Which means that we are a, a grain of sand in the middle of this world. Now let me ask you a question. How much do you think that God who is infinitely greater than the universe, he cares for you. Are we important for God? Or he's too busy taking care of other people, more important than us. Do you think that God has thought about you today? Psalm 139, if we open our Bibles, Psalm 139 gives the answer of how much our infinite God Curse about us. So let's open our Bibles in this psalm to learn how the infinite God is also an intimate God. The infinite God 
It is is also an intimate God. So this psalm written by David teaches how God is an infinite God, yet he is deeply, intimately, and profoundly involved and interested in our daily lives, in our daily struggles, and in our daily joys as well. So let's read the first six verses. And in, this, in these first uh, six verses, we will see how David is going to re- recognize God's omniscience, which means that God knows everything. He's wise in absolutely everything. So let's read for the choir director, a psalm of David. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my laying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. So how do these six first verses in this psalm tell us that God knows everything? If we pay pay a, a little bit of attention here, David is using some interesting words. In verse one, he says, you have searched me. And this word that he's using literally means to dig. To dig as deep as you can. Dig as you cannot dig anymore. And that is what David wanted to express. Lord, you know me perfectly. You know me perfectly because you have dig the deepest part of my heart. And he also says in this first verse, you have known me. And David is expressing that the knowledge that God has of David is total. It is complete. God's action to know him is done. God doesn't have to know David anymore because he knows him in a complete, in a perfect way. So what David is expressing here is, Lord, you have dug to the deepest part of my heart. You know absolutely everything, everything that I am, everything that I think, everything that I feel. You don't have to know me anymore because your knowledge about me is complete. Isn't this amazing? God knows everything, everything about us. Even more than that, God knows things that we don't even know about ourselves. So David continues to develop this idea in these first six verses. That God is omniscient. God God has perfect knowledge. So in verses 2 and 3, we see how God knows that David, what David is doing. And God knows what David thinks. So listen to the words David uses here. To know, to understand, to scrutinize, intimately acquainted. And even in verse 4, David says that God knows what is going to come out from his mouth, even before it happens. So the, the idea is very clear for us. God knows absolutely everything. The past, the present, and the future 
with all its variables. By the way, can you imagine us with such power? Think about it for a second. What would it happen? Thank God that we don't know what others think, right? Thank God that we don't have the gift or telepathy. It would be chaotic to know what everybody thinks about you. It would be chaotic because we have sin in our, in our minds, in our hearts. But there is more because God's omniscience also means that he protects us. He doesn't only know, knows us. He also protects us. In verse 5, we read, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And the, the words that David is using here are referred to a siege. I come from Spain. We have uh, castles everywhere. So we are very used to the idea of, um, in our history, of the army coming to a castle. So what would the people do in the surroundings? Everybody would run into the castle and they would be safe, right, within the walls of the castle. And this is what David is saying. In the same way, God surrounds David. And God is not allowing any harm to come to him without his permission. So God also protects us from danger and evil because he knows everything that is going to happen to us. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about how many times God has saved you from danger? I'm sure you do. And even more amazing, how many times do you think that God has protected you from danger without even knowing it? Even in this very moment, countless of times. So David's answer should be our answer. Let's read verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I, can know, I cannot attain to it. That's David's response to God's absolute knowledge. It is too wonderful for me. So for us today, what do we learn from these first six verses? Now I want, I want to point out two, two things. First of, one, first, first of all, think about God's grace. Even though he's been fully aware of our sins and imperfections from eternity, he still saved us. That is grace. That is amazing grace. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward, toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace. And I also want to point out to a, a second lesson. Although he knows that we're, what we're going to say, he commands us and desires to hear our prayers. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Isn't it amazing? Remember, we are a grain of sand in a world that is a grain of sand in a galaxy that is a grain of sand in the universe. And this universe is a grain of sand compared to God, but yet our infinite God wants to have an intimate relationship with us. Praise the Lord. But God is not only omniscient. In the next six verses, from verse 7 to 12, David also is going to recognize that God is omnipresent. So what does it mean? That means that God is everywhere. 
He's in every place. Let's read the verses and, and, and see how David expresses it. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So the question is, where can David hide from God? Where can he hide from God? Nowhere, right? I mean, ask, ask Jonah. Jonah should have read this psalm before he considered taking that boat. Because God is everywhere. I mean, listen to the words that David uses to explain the idea that God is everywhere. He says, verse 7, I, where can I go? Where can I flee? If I ascend to heaven, verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn, the remotest part of the sea, even there you are there. If uh, your right hand will lay hold of me in the darkness and the light, that, that's, that's not important for you because you are everywhere. What a beautiful and very poetic way to say that God is everywhere. David understands that there is no one place in this entire universe where God is not present. So what can we learn from these verses? I want to point to two lessons that we can learn from David's expression of God's omnipresence. These verses remind us that we must pursue holiness. Again, God knows, God sees, and God hears everything. And this is wonderful. We feel secure. But at the same time, it is sovereign. Our holy God knows everything we do and everything we think. So shouldn't we pursue holiness? Shouldn't we constantly seek to please him? And related to this first point, these verses remind us also that God dwells within us, the believers. God is everywhere, even dwelling in the believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that the body of the believer belongs to Christ, that the believer is one with Christ, that his body also is part of a larger, larger body, the church, and that his body is a spiritual temple where the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells. So in this context, Paul tells to the Corinthians in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. What Paul tells the Corinthians is this. Every time you have relations with a prostitute, you are involving Christ in it. Every sin that is committed by the believer, sexual or not, is committed in God's sanctuary, where God dwells. 
Shouldn't this make us think twice before we want to fall into temptation the next time? This is the level of intimacy that we have with our God. And therefore, we must pursue holiness with his help. But also, having the Holy Spirit living in us to bring us consolation and joy. He guides us in our spiritual walk, right? He helps us understand the scripture. He gives us assurance of our salvation. Our God is everywhere, even within us, the believers. He is so infinite, yet he is so intimate. That is the level of intimacy that our Lord, the Lord of the universe, has with us. Therefore, David is expressing in these first uh, verses that God is omniscient and that God is omnipresent. And David also recognizes... uh, Third characteristic of God. David says that God is omnipotent. He has all the power to do whatever he wants. Let's read uh, verses uh, 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So, in these verses, David uses beautiful images to describe that he's God's creation. He's acknowledging in verse 13 that God formed him. Literally, he says, God, you formed my kidneys. When he was inside of his mother, when he was made in secret, when he was in the depths of the earth, as verse 15 says, when he was still an embryo, so little that he did not even have the form of a baby, God already knew him perfectly. And David is amazed at God's powerful miracle of life. Thank you, he says, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 14. I know that, David says. I know that. My soul knows it. We will say today, I know that I am not an accident. Lord, I know that I am not the result of chance because I have been skillfully wrought by the Lord of the universe. And we thank you for that. By the way, these are great verses to talk about abortion. God considers, considers us even before we have human shape. That's what the Bible says. And David expresses how God knows all his days. Verse 16, he knows when he was born and he knows when he's going to die. So what is David's response here? Verses 17 and 18. How precious are all also are your thoughts of me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. So David is in awe of God. The God of the universe. The God that is omnipotent. 
his response is a shout of praise. From the moment he wakes up until he goes to bed, he is amazed at God's, God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. God is just too much for his limited mind. Because God is an infinite God. But yet, he is also an intimate God. So for us today, what can we learn from these verses? Let me point out to two more lessons. Just like David, we can only marvel at God's creating power. And even beyond, because the Bible tells us that God sustains the whole universe. The planets, the stars, the atmosphere, the fact that you and I are breathing right now. The laws of physics still work because our omnipotent God holds everything with his power. But he doesn't only sustain the whole universe. He also sustains our salvation in Christ. His power should bring us comfort. Let me tell you this way. There is only one possibility of losing our salvation. Do you, do you want to know how we can lose it? Everybody's looking at me very straight right now. Let me put it this way. We will lose our salvation when God stops being omnipotent. And when do you think that is going to happen? Never. God sustains our salvation in Christ. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about this question. How can a God so infinite and holy be so accessible and intimate? There is a beautiful song, a spiritual, written by Moses Hogan. The title is, My God is So High. I don't know if you know the song. Beautiful song. And the first verse says, My God is so high, you can't get over him. He's so low, you can't get under him. He's so wide, you can't get around him. You must come in by and through the Lamb. And nothing. The author nailed it. Christ, the Lamb of God, is the only way to the Father. His perfect sacrifice made a way. And now we can approach with confidence, right? The throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in the time of need, like Hebrews says. So our glorious Savior, the perfect Lamb, suffered the death that we deserve so we can have now an intimate relationship with the infinite God. And by the way, this Savior, Christ, God-man, he possesses all the exact same characteristics, characteristics that we've seen in this psalm. Jesus is omniscient, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, because he is God. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is omnipotent. He's equal to the Father, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. John uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, and other verses tell us um, that Jesus is omniscient. Matthew 28, 20, missions verse, says that Jesus is omnipresent. I am with you always. Jesus is fully God. Yet he became man and sacrificed himself for us. 
the infinite God came and dwell among us. So we can have a relationship, intimate relationship with him. Now I have to make a quick turn here. Because that's what David does in the psalm. So David all of a sudden, out of the blue apparently, becomes what we would say politically incorrect. Why is that? Well, let's read verses 19 to 22 and you will understand. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Like somebody said, these are some verses to put in the fridge at home, right? Or to say, hey, brother, I have some verses for you today. That would be complicated to approach that. But um, doesn't it look like all of a sudden David makes a mistake in the psalm? Why this sudden shift? What are these verses doing here? I tell you, this sermon would be way easier without these, these verses here. But I am sure that they're in the perfect place because they're also inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what, do, what does David want to express here in the context of the psalm? And this is what I think. David was in awe thinking about the beauty, holiness, perfection of his infinite God. He was delighting. I mean, we were reading, he was delighting in him. He was delighting in his wonders and his presence. He was having a great time with God. And all of a sudden, the reality that surrounds him in his context hits him. And his reaction is rejection of those who walk through the evil way. So David doesn't want to be part of that. He does not want to He doesn't want any kind of influence. Verse 19 says, depart from me. For David, God's enemies are his enemies. He is so identified with God that when people rise rise up against him, against God, David sees it as rising up against himself. He is closely identified with God because he has a personal and intimate relationship with him. But you may ask, why all this hatred, David? Come on. Does he have to be so bold about it? Or even more important, could we express ourselves like him? That would be, that would be good. The Bible allows me to tell, tell you that I hate you. I hate them with my utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Verse 22 says, right? Let me give you different ideas, uh, ideas related to the context to understand these words. First of all, David is a war, uh, warrior. More than that, uh, this is probably a prayer that he did around the time of his coronation as king of Israel, which means that he's just expressing his loyalty to God and his people against Israel's enemies. Some, also, some solid scholars affirm that the word hate and hatred means strong opposition against them, not really to hate. And we have to think also about this. Jesus' words, love and pray for your enemies, we'll have to wait over a thousand years yet. Whatever it might be, 
David is not really saying anything, anything new here. So note in the second part of verse 19. David calls them men of bloodshed. And in David's context, these men are against the people of God. And they take the lives of the people of God. And his own life is at risk. And the law is clear. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 24. So the consequence of purposefully taking somebody's life back then was capital punishment. And this is why he, as king of Israel, rightly says in the first part of verse 19, all that you would slay the wicked, O God. So he's just praying according to the will of God. Because they are David's enemies, for they stand against God. So the answer to my question, if we as believers in the New Testament can hate our enemies, I'm sorry, but it's no. It is no. What the Bible clearly teaches us regarding our enemies are two lessons. First is confrontation. This is the tension for us today. The Bible calls us to love and pray, right? Love and pray for our enemies. So think about this. Aren't we loving our enemies when we confront them? I believe so. When we confront those that despise God and we tell them the truth, the truth, we are actually loving them. Don't you think? Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry. And you know what? This is an order. This is an order from Paul. Be angry. Paul says, be angry against injustice. Be angry against immorality. Be angry against sin. Be angry against anyone that is sinning against God. Yet, do not sin. Don't let it last too long. Somebody said, we need the anger of a John Wesley or a William Wilberforce at personal or societal sins. Or the anger of Luther at doctrinal aberration. Proper anger, proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. And I believe this is true. And this is what David, David is expressing. So brothers, sisters, we must stand, stand with God against those who rise against him. We must confront them with God's truth. This is what missions is all about. To stand against God's enemies to bring the truth that God gave us. If you ought to have a personal relationship with God, you will stand with God against the world. And that means possibly that you're going to stand against your father or against your mother or your closest friends, your friends at work, at school. But God goes first. And they are our mission field. So we have to confront them. But the other side of the coin is this. Compassion. Why? Because we were all like these enemies. We were all sinners. We all hated God. We were his enemies. Until when? Until somebody loved us enough 
to confront us and show us the cross of Christ and his victory in his resurrection. Now, if God has compassion for us, he also has compassion for this kind of people, for his own enemies. If they live one more day, it's because of his grace towards them. Think about this. God, every day, hears and suffers billions and billions of sins every day. But he is compassionate. But he is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Do you have people like this in your own life? You have a mother, a father, a closest friend, a brother, a sister that is standing against God? You must confront them with compassion. That's your mission field right now. We must point them to Christ. And if they reject him, verse 22, if they become, their, if they become enemies, if they declare themselves in the enemy status, they're going to be justly punished by God. But let not it be because we have not loving them enough and have enough love for the lost to confront them. Now there is a final section. And we see the contrast right now in the last two verses. Verse 23. Let's read. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The contrast is this. The wicked way. And now David loves and desires to walk the everlasting way. He finishes with the same words he used in verse 1. If you compare these two verses. Verse 23 and verse 1. It says search and know. But now, David is asking God to do it. He knows that God does it. We've seen it. He knows that he searches him. God knows David because he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's an infinite God. And because he's infinite, he can also be an intimate God for David. So David's desire is not mere emotionalism. It is not just feelings. Some people think that in order to have intimacy with God, they have to feel him. They have to have butterflies in their stomach, right? Almost like a mystical experience. But when the Bible talks about intimacy, it is more than that. It is the consequence of understanding who God is and how God is. The more we know him, the more intimacy we have with him. And of course, feelings and affections toward him will derive. We don't take emotions out of the equation, right? But they must come out from a correct understanding of who he is from our Bibles. Our theology must shape our doxology. I, w- I would love that. This, this phrase is mine. But it comes from the theologian Shailene. So... But it's really, really good. Our theology must shape our doxology. What we know about God has to shape and stir up our emotions towards him. 
And that is why David spent 18 verses, the first 18 verses unfolding who God is, to finally say, with all his heart, search me, O God, and know my heart. Isn't it beautiful? David says, Lord, I do not want to walk through the evil way. I want to walk through the eternal way. Search me, God. Search my heart. Clean my heart. Test me. Dig unto the deepest, the most remote, remote and darkest part of it. And if I have any bad thoughts, if I am worshiping idols, if I am anxious because of my lack of confidence in you, please forgive me. And please clean me. I do not want to sin against you. You are so precious. You are so infinite. You are so powerful. And sin hurts your heart so much and separates me so much from you that I just want to be more holy. Lead me through the everlasting way. What a prayer, brothers and sisters. That is an intimate prayer to an infinite God. This is an honest prayer right here. Somebody that wants a personal relationship with the eternal God of the universe. Let me ask you now. When was the last time you prayed to God with such confidence in his infinite power? When was the last time you prayed with such boldness? David opens, completely opens his heart to God. Even though God's know, God knows him very well, right? But David is so ready, he's so willing to open his heart. He desperately wants intimate communion with his infinite God. But now, this prayer comes from a regenerate heart. I want you to note something, the last thing. Note David's last two words in the psalm. David's last two words, the everlasting way. Somehow, David understands that there is an eternal way. Why is that? Well, David is a believer of the Old Testament. And God saved David because David believed in the eternal promise, ultimately pointed, that points to Christ. The promise that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Everything points to Christ, the eternal son who made the eternal sacrifice. So David and the saints of the Old Testament and now all of us in the New Testament could have access to the eternal father and walk in intimate relationship with him forever. Christ is the way to the father. Let me rephrase this. Christ is the only way to the father. Even for the believers in the Old Testament. And because of, the, of, of his sacrifice, we can enter now in an intimate relationship with our infinite God. Let me ask you again. Have you understood who God is? He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely precious. Wise. He is everywhere. The Bible tells us that Christ came to reveal the Father, to be the way, the way, the only way to God, a way that nobody else or nothing else could. So if you haven't thought about the infinite separation 
between you and God. I encourage you to seriously start today. Come to Christ. Repent from the wicked way, from the sinful way, and start walking the eternal way. And this is what we have to tell our enemies in the New Testament, in our society, in our family. That is our mission. Repent. Know Christ. He is the only way to the Father. He is the eternal way. He is so infinite, yet He cares. He loves you. A grain of sand, remember? In this universe. A grain of sand in this world. That He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, so you can walk the everlasting way. And if you are a believer in Christ, I encourage you to learn from David's view and David's understanding of who God is and from his personal communion with him. The more you know God, the more and better you worship him and the more ready you are to tell others about him. Think also about the reality of an infinite God that wants a more and more intimate relationship with you. A grain of sand in this universe, yes, but fearfully and wonderfully created and covered with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled. We just scratched the surface of this home, but we are so humble by your infinite power and knowledge. We're so humbled understanding who you are and that you decided from eternity, knowing our wicked ways, knowing our sin perfectly, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ, your son, to make a way so we can have close communion with you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming down and live among us and die on the cross. And thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that today we can proclaim this to the world that the infinite God is ready and willing to have a personal relationship with sinners like us. Lord, that this thought fuels our mission in this world. We know that you are with us in this task. We praise you this morning. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.